This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. The AR-15 is the best-selling rifle in America. According to polling by the Washington Post and Ipsos, about 1 in 20 adults in the U.S. own an AR-15. That's roughly 16 million people. I own an AR-15, and I have to say it's an amazing rifle. I've had two AR-15s. I've used them both exclusively for target shooting. I do own several of them, and I've uh, owned them since I was in the Army Reserve. I had to uh, maintain my That was my job as the uh, armor of my reserve unit. I was also a police officer for a while. The AR-15 gets a lot of bad press, appropriately so, because of young males with mental problems and mass shootings. I do think that we need better gun control to prevent these weapons from falling into the hands of people. I don't think there should be any question about that. AR-15s have been used in 10 of the 17 most deadly mass shootings in the United States since 2012. And while they weren't initially designed for civilian use, they've become a powerful symbol for pro-gun advocates. That AR and AR-15 stands for Arma Light Rifle, a reference to the company that first designed it for military use. Today, we talk about the history and rise in popularity of the AR-15. What does its cultural legacy mean for attempts to ban assault weapons? And why does this rifle cause so much more damage when it's used against you? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back after this quick break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast, On Investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from New York is Jennifer Maschia. She's a senior writer at The Trace. That's a nonprofit newsroom reporting on guns. Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the basics. What is a semi-automatic rifle? So the ATF defines a semi-automatic assault weapon. Those are the words that they use. As a semi-automatic rifle that uses a detachable magazine and has two of the following features. A folding stock, which is the back part of the gun that folds or detaches and makes the rifle smaller. A pistol grip that's similar to a handgun. A mount underneath the barrel for attaching a bayonet or a knife. So these sound like combat tactical specifications, which is true because it, event- it originally started 
um, as a weapon designed for war. So <clears throat> a semi-automatic rifle means one trigger pull per bullet. It's not an automatic rifle, which where you pull the trigger, several bullets come out. And the reason that this was actually preferred in the battlefield is because semi-automatic rifles are more accurate than automatic rifle fire. What were some of the first iterations of this gun? So this this gun was designed for Vietnam, really. They were looking for lightweight rounds. The guns that they were carrying around for hours were extremely heavy. So um, a designer uh, with Armalite developed this lightweight gun that actually the design was rejected, but it was rejiggered into the M16, which we all know. And... Um, at that point, it wasn't. Uh, it, it was not on the civilian market at all. Uh, the, the civilian market was geared toward handguns for self-defense and rifles and shotguns for hunting. I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us is John Donahue. He's a professor at Stanford Law School. John, welcome to the program. Uh, glad to be with you. John, how did we get to the point where the AR-15 is being purchased by civilians? Well, of course, uh, there were a lot of uh, financial considerations that uh, led to the industry uh, trying to promote the AR-15. Basically, two things uh, had been very unfortunate for the industry. The decline in hunting led to quite a drop in the sales of long guns. And then uh, the eight years of the Clinton administration were a time of an incredible drop in crime. And with the drop in crime, uh, fear went down. And of course, uh, fear is what drives sales of guns for uh, protection. So the industry needed to find a way to combat these two adverse economic uh, consequences. And uh, they launched a a campaign to uh, uh, promote gun sales more generally. And one aspect of that promotion was Uh, to see if they could create the uh, market for the AR-15, which uh, previously, as Jennifer had said, uh, was not a major uh, uh, purchasing item on the uh, consumer market. The National Shooting Sports Foundation, that's a firearms industry trade group, refers to AR-15s and other semi-automatic rifles as modern sporting rifles, or MSRs. And this is a term also used by the National Rifle Association. John, why is that the gun industry's preferred term? Well, of course, when the gun industry first started to promote the AR-15 and other similar weapons, they used the term assault weapons because they thought that this would promote sales. Then when there was pushback against uh, you know, having these on the consumer marketplace, they then said that this was a term that only the, quote, gun grabbers used. But it was actually an industry-created term to assist in the promotion of the sales of their weapons. And now they have uh, tipped over to this modern sporting rifle appellation as a way to suggest that uh, these are are weapons that should be part of just the normal sportsman's uh, arsenal. Jennifer, in your reporting, what have you learned about the language used around this gun and why it's so fraught? The marketing for the AR-15 really appealed to this hyper-masculine 
aspect, you know, like uh, you'd see advertisements, get your man card issued. It really hit at the, like what it means to be a man and a protector. And that's because these rifles really came to public consciousness during the war on terror. Gun executives said people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, these images that were beamed around the world were like a walking advertisement. And that um, gun executives realized they took this dormant sector of their uh, industry and they said, you know, we could actually um, appeal to people who are looking to be those protectors of their families. You could go to America and you could walk around like they did in combat and be a citizen protector. And that mentality um, slowly filtered into the marketplace. And then there was a tie-in with video game designers who um, put this gun in Call of Duty and other first-person shooter games, and then they opened this market up to young men, and we've seen how that turned out. How are civilian versions of the gun different from those used by military personnel, Jennifer? Well, they're they're semi-automatic, so um, the military versions have uh, different settings. One of them is automatic, which is several bullets are released for one trigger pull, and that is not legal here, except, you know, machine guns are uh, acquirable, but you need a lot of federal licensing. They're heavily restricted. Semi-automatic fire is the civilian version. But of course, the rounds are just as deadly. I mean, these guns are designed to kill as many people in the shortest amount of time. And when a rifle round enters the human body, it twists um, and carves a path through flesh that's much wider. It can be several inches from the entry wound. Handgun rounds don't do this, and this is why these wounds are rarely survivable. Let's turn to our voice mailbox. Here's what we heard from Brian in Utah. I do own an AR-15. I built it myself. It was a lot of fun to build, and it's a very cool-looking gun. However, um, I've actually thought about selling it uh, I don't need it for hunting. I don't shoot it very often because it's expensive to shoot, and uh, I'm not in a war, so I don't really know why I need it, um, and I would certainly not object to giving it up if it meant that we could have a safer society. Now, John, like we heard in that message, the AR-15 can be built and it can be customized. What does that look like? Yes, uh, I mean, un- unfortunately, you can add elements to the AR-15 that make it even more lethal. So, for example, the Sutherland Springs mass murderer who killed 26 people at a Baptist church in Sutherland Springs, Texas in 2017 had modified his gun so that he could change the uh, magazines more rapidly. Of course, that aided his efforts to stand outside the church, shoot 254 bullets through the walls of the church at the head level of the people inside in the pews. And so these are the things that um, uh, we can get troubled by, of course, because uh, he, he added a laser scope to the gun. So, so there are accoutrements to the weapon that you can use. And unfortunately, there are often a lot of uh, rather uh, off-color aspects that are added to the gun. So you can get a dust cover that will say something like, your eft uh, as a sort of sign that this is a weapon of great power and we're going to mow down people we don't like. So uh, I think in general, there are a, a lot of elements of the marketing of the gun and the uh, accoutrements of the gun that 
probably are unhelpful for the individuals who might be at the margins of mental well-being, and many of those individuals show up at these mass shootings. Ahead, we speak to a reporter who visited Sutherland Springs, Texas, to learn how that community is recovering from the mass shooting. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the discussion by adding another voice. Sylvia Foster Frau is a reporter at The Washington Post. She recently reported on how the AR-15 became a powerful cultural symbol and how one community of mass shooting survivors are still affected by the carnage the weapon caused in their town. She joins us now. Sylvia, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So you recently reported on the community of Sutherland Springs, Texas, and that's the town where a gunman opened fire at the First Baptist Church in November 2017. 27 people were killed and 22 were injured. David Colbath survived that shooting, and he recounted those moments to the Washington Post. And I just want to warn our listeners that this is not easy to listen to. He shoots me in the back, right in the back of the neck. And I probably look dead already. And then he turns around and he shoots this kid on my back that's his head is three quarters away up my back. So he shoots him multiple times, the girl on his back, the girl on his back, and the girl on her back. So he just shoots him, almost empties the magazine. Then he steps over my head. I laid there and I said, where is the help? Where is the help? He'd leave and it was 45 seconds with no noise and we're thinking he's gone. And yet he came back in and, and shot the place up some more. And it was just, to, to me, it was a never-ending ordeal, an 18-minute ordeal of an ungodly amount of bullets being spent through this church. Sylvia, how has that attack stayed with the survivors six years later? Um, it has not left the community, and they're still suffering every single day to this day um, because of that time. Um, people are suffering from lead toxicity and all of the symptoms that come with that. Um, people have been disabled permanently for the rest of their lives. Um, constant pain, constant doctor's visits, still shelling out um, money in medical treatments as things continue to resurface or um, treatments aren't working. Um, just the level of medicalization that they go through still, you know, in some cases every single week is just incredible. And then there's just um, the tremendous grief and loss that comes with losing so many people. I think, you know, we all expect in the course of our lives to have to lose our parents when they get a certain age, our grandparents, things like that. But to lose 
you know, in the case of John Holcomb, he lost three children, his pregnant wife, both of his parents, his brother, his brother's daughter it was their first um, child, his niece. I mean, the, the scope of the loss, too, is also just very hard to comprehend. And so, like, in John Holcomb's case, it's now him, his daughter, and his son, and they're they're the people that are left, and they've had to carve out an entirely new life and path for themselves. So it's um, it's really hard to see, you know, as these mass shootings keep happening, knowing, you know, that five, six years down the line, that's what that's going to look like for those mm. people. You mentioned lead toxicity. I- explain why survivors are suffering from that. Yes. So um, when these bullets that are moving at such a high velocity enter the bodies of people, they pulverize and they go into pieces that are way too small, way too minuscule for a doctor to say extract or remove. And they're in internal organs. They're even on on people's skin. You can see in several of the survivors' bodies that there are little freckles, purple freckles they look like in kind of Um, all kind of regionalized in one area of their body that are these pulverized pieces of lead. And they leach in people's bodies, in people's bloodstreams. So Morgan Workman, who survived the shooting, um, has struggled with lead poisoning and still goes to the doctor every single week. Now she's trying this kind of holistic treatment where she's getting a cocktail vitamins um, in her blood every week as a kind of alternative because nothing else was really working. But because of that, um, she's been advised by doctors that um, not to have children, that she Mm -hmm. could not bring a healthy child to term because of the lead toxicity. Um, So you see, right, this just the, the lifelong physical effect of just you know, she she wasn't um, directly shot, right? And so you you just see really the scope of the damage that it causes in people. We got this email from David who says, of the many features of an AR-15, the only feature that impacts the casualty rate in a mass shooting is the magazine capacity. As a responsible assault weapon owner, I could live with a magazine capacity limitation, but I see no sense in banning the other features. Jennifer, I want to come to you specifically to comment on the magazine capacity of this weapon. Um, the You know, there, it's not for nothing that assault weapon bans are also accompanied with high-capacity magazine bans. When you can fire off 30 bullets in a matter of seconds, um, the fatality rate is much higher. Uh, the reason people want to limit magazine capacity is because if somebody has to stop to reload, there is a chance to tackle that shooter, which has happened, actually, in several shootings. Sylvia, what sorts of resources have come into Sutherland Springs to try to help this community heal? Yeah, so I think especially right after the shooting, there was a lot um, therapy and counseling organizations set up shops in the town. There was a state victims crime fund that made itself available and donations and funds from across the country of people trying to help poured in. They were able to build a new church. Um, They were able to get kind of basic, the kind of initial medical care um, taken care of. Um, but as we see so often is that then another mass shooting happens, another tragedy happens, and the country's thoughts and 
prayers and funds and donations shift to another community that's been affected. And so a lot of these folks who live in a rural working class area, um, most of them are still living in trailer homes and in kind of working class rural conditions and still really struggling to pay their medical bills because it's been six years and we've had countless mass shootings that have made national headlines since then. I think it's been very hard for them to continue receiving attention for what they're going through and what they've been through and also to receive those kinds of services that people were so willing and um, you know quick to give at the outset of the shooting. As we said earlier, roughly 16 million Americans own at least one AR-15. Jennifer, how does that compare to the ownership numbers of other types of guns? Well, AR-15s are a fraction of the market. Um, gun rights groups like to say that they're in common use because that's kind of a phrase that um, – the Supreme Court uh, judges these cases by is a gun in common use. But the truth is, we have 400 million guns in this country. So 27, 30 million guns is but a fraction of the guns that are owned by civilians. Handguns are concealable. And that's why the market for handguns is much more brisk. AR-15s are, you know, they're more lightweight than what they were trying to replace, but they're still an involved machine. I've actually fired AR-15s. You really have to know what you're doing. It's not something you can just strap in your holster and go. John, AR-15s were used in 10 of the 17 deadliest mass shootings in the U.S. Why are they the weapon of choice for these attacks? Well, as we said, uh, there there are a couple of dimensions to the mass shooting problem, uh, and the industry does sort of target the, the sense of powerlessness and weakness that many potential mass shooters are motivated by. Even Devin Kelly, who we've been speaking about as the killer in the Sutherland Springs case, had just posted uh, a few days before he went on his mass shooting spree a picture of his, of his AR-15, and, and he, he noted uh, along the picture in Facebook, uh, she's a real bad bitch. And so this is part of the you know, macho image that unfortunately motivates uh, many of these individuals. So the the gun itself, um, even if you stripped away the accoutrements, is still very lethal, but the accoutrements and the image are what motivate so many of these mass shooters. Uh, For example, the Parkland shooter had posted on Facebook, uh, you know, I've been called an idiot my whole life, but now with the AR-15, you will feel my power. So uh, that's one reason why they're they're used. And of course, when you said the most deadly mass shootings uh, often use that, and and all of the dead, deadliest mass shootings would would be an assault rifle with with a high capacity magazine. Um, you can just kill a lot more people, so you make it to the top of the list if you're if you're using this weapon as opposed to a, a less lethal weapon. Sylvia, what are survivors of the Sutherland Springs shooting looking ahead to? What did the the coming years look like for them? Well, they did recently, finally, after a lot of back and forth, um, win a settlement with the government of 144 million dollars, which may sound like a lot in the outset, but when you look at how that will be parsed out and the lawyer fees that will be included in that um, amount to some, but but not a lot of money, but it it was a a win for them that I think they are looking forward to. Um, But I think 
for them, it's it's a constant. Um, it's a constant understanding that there will be more mass shootings and um, learning ways to protect themselves mentally from having to relive and reprocess what they went through um, as it you know continues to play out in the country. And Sylvia, why were they awarded those funds? Yes, um, that was because they sued the federal government, which had failed to report the gunman Devin Kelly's um, history of domestic violence. It should have been flagged in a background system that prevented him from buying a weapon. Um, But the Air Force did not flag that information, which allowed him to purchase the weapons that killed them. So they sued the federal government and recently um, reached a tentative settlement with them. Jennifer, we've talked a bit about the speed that the AR-15 fires at it. And why does that speed make the gun uniquely dangerous? The more bullets you can fire in the shortest amount of time means that you can kill the most people in a short amount of time. And when police response is only minutes away, um, people who stage these attacks, that's kind of what they're hoping for, unfortunately. This weapon allows them to do that. And also when they don't have to stop and reload, they can fire off even more bullets in a single uh, setting. John, how has the AR-15 been discussed politically over the the past several decades? How has that conversation changed, if at all? Well, of course, the entire gun conversation has changed massively over the years. There was a time when the NRA supported federal gun control measures. Uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, uh, was famous for saying there's no reason why people should be carrying loaded weapons on the street. People of goodwill have to solve things uh, in a peaceable manner. Um, and, and so both the NRA and the Republican Party have gone through this massive transition. And since the uh, AR-15 and assault weapons more generally were part of a, uh, a very dedicated uh, uh, marketing campaign to uh, promote sales of, of weaponry, uh, this link between the, uh, the gun companies and, and the uh, and the Republican Party has been a very powerful influence. So, of course, uh, we mentioned the marketing uh, that is very, very problematic in the way that it, it appeals to potential mass shooters like Adam Lanza, who used the weapon that was merchandised by saying, consider your man card reissued. Um, the, uh, the, the, the problematic elements of this are, are so extreme in many ways uh, and, of course, uh, there would have been lawsuits against these companies, but the uh, Republican Party uh, bowed to the industry pressure to pass a federal immunity statute, which has made it very difficult to uh, stop the aggressive advertising uh, of the AR-15, which has brought it to so much prominence in the in the public mind. It's now become, you know, the sort of... Uh, device that is used to show contempt for uh, people who um, are, are viewed to be more liberal or on the other side of the, the aisle that I'm going to have the AR-15 and I'm going to bring it to political rallies in a way to, um, you know, essentially intimidate people who have a different view than I have. 
Sylvia, it's important to note that you're in Texas right now covering another mass shooting. And this time it's in the city of Allen, where a gunman killed eight people, including three children in a shopping mall. How is that community dealing with this tragedy? You know, it's it's just another community that's reeling from the fact that it hit so close to home. I think another kind of layer is that this gunman was also espousing neo-Nazi and anti-Asian um, hate that we've come to learn um, through his social media photos. And so a lot of the minority communities here are especially um, feel feel especially vulnerable and are um, there. I think they're they're just scared because they had been taking pride. This this part of Dallas has um, or northern Dallas suburbs has undergone demographic change, and it, for a lot of folks, it was a very prized um, aspect of their community that it had become diverse. And so I think knowing that someone had been kind of fantasizing about race wars and disparaging people of color and then goes on to commit such a crime. And he, he's Hispanic, too. And so I think the Latino community in particular um, is really struggling with that. And yeah, I mean, it's it's more people who realize just how close to home these things can happen and feel especially vulnerable to go out in public and live their daily lives. That's Sylvia Foster-Frau. She's a reporter at The Washington Post. You can read their project on the cultural legacy of the AR-15 online. Sylvia, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. We've still got a lot more to discuss after this quick break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Let's get back to our conversation with this email from Wendell, who says, Most owners of AR-15s and other military-style weapons have these weapons because they believe we will soon be in a war or already in a war. They are saturated with conspiracy theories perpetrated on talk radio and social media. I mean, Jennifer, what do we know about what motivates people to purchase these weapons? What a lot of uh, gun owners say, and that what I think... Uh, many Americans don't understand is that these guns are fun to shoot. I mean, um, you know, they're derided as, oh, you're playing war games in the woods. But the truth is that they are accurate. Um, They're, you know, they're kind of like wieldy. I mean, you have to really know what you're doing. And once you master a weapon like that, it makes you feel powerful. But they they really are uh, fun to shoot. Um, People really seem to enjoy these tactical weapons. Um, I have family members who own them and build them, and they really don't see any practical purpose in the real world, like you'd carry a concealed handgun for self-defense. It really is just um, a, a tool that they that they enjoy. 
You know, Jan, we touched on the idea that AR-15s started out as a military weapon, but who made that call to start marketing the gun to civilians? Well, that happened in 2005. It was after the war on terror uh, when we saw all these images of people with these guns. Uh, Smith & Wesson, and we know this from Washington Post's wonderful reporting where they got internal company documents, um, Smith & Wesson really saw an opportunity in the market. They saw that these tactical rifles were flat. No big gun maker had really taken one on. So they decided to take a chance, and they found success. But, you know, the uh, NRA, the gun lobby, they looked down on these weapons because they didn't really see a practical purpose. Again, they're not concealable. They're not something you can use for self-defense. They didn't really see their place um, in society. And of course, when they hooked up with the video game makers, suddenly a new market was created. I want to go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Bonnie in Tennessee. I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland. I moved to East Tennessee about five years ago. Um, East Tennessee and all of Tennessee and has uh, a love of gun culture here. My husband purchased uh, several handguns and rifles and also an AR-15 simply because he could, out of curiosity. I had the opportunity, though, to practice shooting each one of these guns, and I found that the AR-15 was the one I liked the best. It was lightest in my hand, it was the easiest to use, and it was the one that gave me a sense of power. We also got this email from Roberto, who says, I own one AR and am politically on the left. I used to be very anti-gun ownership, with the pandemic showing how fragile our society is and the rise in violent anti-trans, queer, and immigrant rhetoric. I wanted the most effective means to defend myself and loved ones facing direct and indirect threats. When we talk about the political debate around guns, it's very divided red and blue, conservative, progressive. But when we talk about actual gun ownership, Jennifer, is it that straightforward? No, it's not. There's millions of liberal gun owners in America. Actually, many people in the gun reform movement now own guns themselves, and they're trying to model responsible handgun ownership. This is very different from the beginning of the gun reform movement, like 40, 50 years ago, where they were calling for handgun bans. Um, At this point, many Americans own guns. It's not as partisan as people might think. That's just because the public conversation around it has become very polarized. But it's not for nothing that Republican lawmakers are posing on their Christmas cards with these guns. They're not holding 22s. Guns have become an organizing principle for far-right republicanism with AR-15s as the chief symbol. We got this email from Bob who says, when I enlisted in the Army late in 1969, the AR-15 was issued to us in basic training. We were among the first recruits to get it. It was easy to carry and the ammunition was relatively lightweight. As a military weapons enthusiast since childhood, I was extremely pleased to be trained on this rifle. I never felt the urge to own the semi-automatic AR-15 version, though, until I heard that Bill Clinton might ban their sale. John, take us to that period in history and explain how potential bans or even suggested bans affected the sale of AR-15s. Yes, it's uh, it's quite an interesting dynamic. Of course, uh, 
The late 80s were the emergence of the mass shooting problem, and so naturally government uh, uh, tried to respond to that mass shooting problem and did succeed in 1994 in getting a federal assault weapon ban passed, which did reduce the number of deaths from mass shootings. Uh, but the Republican Party switched sides on that issue. President uh, George W. Bush had campaigned saying he would support the retention of the assault weapon ban, but by 2004, uh, the Republican Party had switched on that issue. And so 10 years later, uh, the ban was lifted. And every time there is an effort that might suggest that you would return to the assault weapon ban. You do see uh, quite a stimulus to gun sales. Uh, also, a lot of this rhetoric that uh, you know the United States is about to collapse and you need uh, assault weapons is part of the uh, marketing device. So when uh, Barack Obama was uh, uh, you know elected president. Uh, there were some racist uh, memes that, you know, now uh, the country is at more risk because uh, a black president is in power and you better get your uh, AR-15. So any, anything that can be used to stimulate fear is a very powerful tool to promote gun sales. And, and that's something that the gun industry and also the Republican Party as a political device has been anxious to stimulate. I'm really curious about the use of video games in the marketing of AR-15s and how, how that relationship even formed and, and how it made the gun more mainstream. Jennifer? Yeah, um, a few years after these started selling, the designers of Call of Duty um, contacted uh, Smith & Wesson and they started recording the sounds of this gun being fired and uh, for their video games. And you're, so you're having these authentic, actual sounds of gunfire in these video games. And the people who played them thought that they were warriors. Um, this seems to have appealed to a certain uh, caliber of, you know, young male who is, you know, has these aggressions. And um, so that really, it kind of found a niche there. But as we've seen, that can be extremely toxic, that association. And it's actually because of the marketing that several states have passed laws against this kind of marketing to kind of find a workaround uh, for the federal immunity because they can't sue them on a federal level. But that's actually how Sandy Hook victims um, got a settlement out of Remington because Connecticut had one of these laws about negligent marketing, and they were able to use that. Well, in February, Republican Congressman Barry Moore of Alabama introduced a bill to declare the AR-15 the national gun of America. And what I'm hearing from both of you is that this gun has become a, a cultural symbol of some kind. What do you think it, it symbolizes? I'd like to hear from each of you. John, I'll come to you first. Yes, I mean it's it's largely a, uh, a I think a embodiment of disdain for uh, the other side of the political aisle on this question. You saw this after the shooting on Saturday in Texas, where the uh, local 
Republican congressman said, uh, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be taking any measures of gun safety uh, because we should just put our trust in God, not in government. And in some sense, that's what this is about. It's become the icon of uh, anti-government uh, ideology. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it has this political resonance now uh, across the country. I should add, though, that two-thirds of Americans want more gun safety legislation. Only 8% want less. And yet, with the Supreme Court that we now have, uh, the movement is very much in the direction of less gun safety regulation. So even with all of the advertising, most Americans would like to see a greater emphasis on gun safety legislation. And Jennifer, your thoughts about what this gun has come to symbolize? It's come to symbolize a way of giving power back to people who are feeling powerless at a time of great change. We're facing a great demographic shift, which is going to put white Americans in the minority for the first time. Um, The technology is changing, leaving a lot of people behind. Um, And also we're getting aggressive marketing that enemies are right around the corner and you need a gun to combat them. Also, if your argument is that we can use guns to counter a tyrannical government, what better way to do that than with weapons of war? It may seem laughable that anyone would think about taking a stand against the United States government, even with AR-15s. But, you know, in their mind, it does even the battlefield. On Monday, a Texas House committee passed a bill that would raise the age to purchase assault-style weapons from 18 to 21. Jennifer, why is that significant? The Uvalde shooter got his gun a couple days after his 18th birthday. And that, you know, if he wasn't able to do that, you know, 21 lives might have been saved. There is an argument that the brain doesn't fully form uh, or mature, you know, are able to weigh consequences and risk-taking and decision-making until after adolescence. So, and also the fact that, you know, some 18-year-olds are in high school and it's not really a a good idea since, you know, especially since we've seen so many school shootings, that somebody in high school could be able to buy these weapons. The other side is that 18-year-olds can fight for their country. So why shouldn't they be able to fire the same guns at home? John, how much do purchasing age laws affect the number of AR-15 type guns being sold? Do we know? Um, well, we we don't know, but um, basically anything that would cut into the market, the industry is obviously very aggressively opposed to. Uh, but as Jennifer just mentioned, uh, uh, you know, th- there are added risks of allowing 18 to 20-year-olds to, to have any type of weapon. And for that reason, the federal government has, has put limits uh, uh, on purchasing handguns even. So I think it is a very good idea. The, the most homicidal ages are 18 to 20. And, and therefore, we do want to um, you know, limit the, the, uh, the risk uh, by, by at least raising the age if we're going to have these weapons available. We got this email from Kathleen who says, we need to stop being delicate around descriptions of what these powerful weapons do to bodies. One of the women shot in Allen, Texas, was approached by first responder and he found she had no face. Is that worth the fun you get from shooting it? Uh, Jennifer, what does the research tell us about 
the effect of AR-15s on the number of mass shootings and the number of casualties in mass shootings in the U.S.? These bullets are rarely survivable because of the blast radius, because they they carve such a path out of human flesh. Of course, gun owners would say, well, when I'm firing my AR-15, I'm not a mass shooter. So I'm just doing this for target practice. So why are you connecting this behavior of this horrible person with me? But clearly, enough of these are being diverted for nefarious means that attention must be paid to it. But the, the way that the round twists once it enters human flesh carves out a path that is just inches from the entry wound. It creates holes in the human body. And this really shouldn't be forgotten in this conversation. The National Shooting Sports Foundation at the Firearms Industry Trade Group estimates that there are 24 million AR-15s and AK-type weapons in circulation in the U.S. as of 2022. That's an increase of 4.5 million since 2020. That's a lot of guns. But some of you don't want them anymore. Laura emails, I have AR-15s in my closet that I don't want. I don't want to put them back into society. What would it take to put a federal buyback program together similar to Australia's program? John, what do you think? Well, of course, Australia banned the guns and then had a buyback after their horrendous mass shooting in 1996 and largely eliminated the mass shooting problem, which in Australia had actually been worse on a per capita basis uh, in the years prior to 1996. So it would be a great idea to do it, uh, but there's there's no uh, appetite in, in the United States Congress now for an assault weapon ban because of the... Um, you know, restrictions uh, that the Republican Party has put on such measures. Uh, But you could have, uh, you know, a voluntary buyback program that would at least get some of the guns off the street. You know, I think uh, Jennifer made the point that, um, you know, some people think that these weapons are are necessary to protect against attack. Uh, And I just would point out that Nancy Lanza, whose son killed the people at Sandy Hook, had that fear, and the gun was used to kill her as well as 26 people because she brought the gun into the home that her 19-year-old son used in that mass shooting. Jennifer, what's next in your reporting? I'm looking at whether the Supreme Court is going to overturn an assault weapon ban in Illinois. This is a much-watched case that could affect the entire country. That's Jennifer Maschia. She's a senior writer at The Trace. That's a nonprofit newsroom reporting on guns. And John Donahue, a law professor at Stanford University. Jennifer, John, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This conversation was originally broadcast from KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. And this program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. When you're home shopping as a parent, you have lots of questions about local schools. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by a dedicated in-house research team. 
It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.